days when Teresa and I were dating. And uh, one of the first, I guess the first time that she went with us as a family to eat, uh, we went to a Chinese food restaurant in Odessa and we sat down and among other things, my dad told her that he was part Mescalera Apache Indian, uh, which there's no truth to that. Um, <laughs> and for months, maybe years, she believed that that was the case. Um, but at the particular time, the moment was really captured when we sat down to eat and they gave us the menus and uh, my dad looked across the table at her and said, now you can, I'm buying this and so, you know, you can order anything you want on the menu as long as it doesn't cost more than a dollar. And a look of panic washed across her face and she looked at me and I just kind of shook my head and so she was baptized then into the Road Trammel family deal. Now, I want to speak to the children here, especially for a moment, teenagers. You need to understand that there is the possibility in your life that in one instant, your parents can be incredibly angry with you and yet very, very proud of you. Case in point, I grew up in a family of practical jokers. I told you that already. And so I got a master's degree in practical joking early on before I even became a youth minister. Uh, and then I got a doctorate in practical joking. Uh, and so I felt like it was really important that I pass that on to my children. And uh, you, uh, you know the word gullible? Yes? Gullible means that, you know, you just kind of believe anything just because somebody said it. Which puts you, if you happen to be gullible in our family, you are in deep trouble. And so we were in a vehicle, Laura and I were talking about this yesterday, we were in a vehicle driving somewhere and we were talking about somebody who was really gullible and we were kind of, you know, enjoying them as victim. And about the time we were, that conversation was tapering off, Lauren from the back seat said, Dad, did you realize the new, the new dictionary came out and they took out the word gullible? And I said, you've got to... And I was so angry with her, and yet, and yet so proud that I had not been a failure as a dad. It was, in sh- for sure, a dull moment in my life. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes 10 says, be sharp. Don't be dull. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 10. Here's what he's going to tell us as we work our way through this passage today. I know it's only one verse. I'll do some support passages to help. But he's going to tell us that wisdom sharpens you as an individual. And in the process of that, it enables you to have a life that is fulfilled. Let me say that again because some of you may, you know, taper off somewhere through the course of the next uh, 30 minutes or so. I'll say it again. Wisdom sharpens your life. And it enables you to have a fulfilled life. Life that is not possible without wisdom applied into your life. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 10. Let's go ahead and read that verse. It says this, if the iron, now let me stop here and give you a different word. Uh, I'll actually, even before I do that, I'll just say this. Uh, scholars tell us that this one verse is probably the hardest verse to translate out of the original Hebrew into English. Uh, it's difficult to translate uh, from the Hebrew side, yet scholars also are on the same page about what it means. So uh, this word iron 
is one of those terms used in that particular time that it was written. Uh, it also can be translated as an axe. So I'm going to use the word axe. It's a little more uh, usable for us. So if the axe is blunt or dull and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Now I'm going to come back to this a couple of times, but let me just go ahead and pull all the context right. You ever been disillusioned with something in your life? You know that point where you go, man, this is not at all what I thought it was going to be. I had a situation like that a number of years ago. I was contacted by the state of Texas, Baptist in the state of Texas, uh, and there was a, an institution down in the Rio Grande Valley that was struggling for survival. It was a viable, uh, as far as the need and all that stuff, it was just struggling to find a life there. And they wanted some local pastors to sit on the board to help kind of breathe life into it and get local support for this uh, institution that was designed to help uh, people who were poor and especially young. Uh, and so I went and I said, okay, I'll do that. I checked in how much time it would take and all that kind of stuff and said, okay, against my better judgment, I'll do it. Felt like it was something I should do. Uh, and so they pulled us out and they took us, all of the new people, to the Baptist building in Dallas, Mecca for Baptists, and uh, sat us in there. We're going to buy you lunch and all this kind of stuff. And so we went through the morning's worth of training and they put us in the lunch line to eat there. And as I was standing there, a guy walked past one of the big chief factotums there, head moguls, and he looked at my name tag and saw where it was that I was assigned to work. Uh, he said, oh, I need to talk to you. He pulled me out of line, pulled me off to the side, and began to tell me how he needed me to be on his political team to fix that as far as he was concerned. And standing there, I thought to myself, I don't need this. And I was totally, thoroughly disillusioned with the whole enterprise from that point forward. That's kind of the picture that we get from the preacher in Ecclesiastes by the time we get to chapter 10. He's pulled us along in this chase of his. He know, we know that we identify so much with that that it's one of those things that we, we find ourselves looking all over the place for meaning and fulfillment in life. And so he's worked his way through and he's come to the point where he's disillusioned with everything under the sun as it relates to life. And so as he begins to now turn our focus and, and turn us towards a conclusion about this chase that we're talking about and how to find fulfillment and meaning in life, he seems to do so by starting to throw a collection of Proverbs together. And so we find that starting in, over in chapter 9, and it's going to stretch a little bit further as we go on here. So let me just give you a couple of them out of chapter 9 that will help us out just a little bit. In chapter 9, verse 13, he says this, I have also seen this example of wisdom, under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. He's saying to us here that wisdom applied in life helps make life meaningful. Chapter 10, verse 1. 
Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So now he's understanding after this broad search that he's gone on, he understands that wisdom applied makes life meaningful, but yet there are still those people, well, my dad used to say, I'm going to give my dad a lot of credit today. My dad used to say, it's hard to make anything foolproof because fools are so dadgum ingenious these days. Well, that's verse 1 of chapter 10. But chapter 9, as we just saw, and especially if we get into the middle of chapter 10, we find this truth being pushed upon us. Wisdom applied makes life matter. What Katie just said, the perspective person, that's part of what we're talking about. So let's look a little bit further because tucked in the middle of all of this, There is this driving theme that he gives us. Wisdom is not the cure-all, but it does help us make sense of life. And we don't have to be frustrated with life in the process. So what's he saying? What's his point here? It's really not that difficult. I'm going to read it one more time. If the axe is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Scholars, like I said, are kind of differed on how to exactly interpret it, but the meaning is universally underscored. Here's a couple of examples. James Crenshaw, an Old Testament scholar, says this, Wisdom is useless if a person does not put it to work for some benefit. The next quote I want to give you, I give you largely because I just like the guy's name, honestly. His name is Tremper Longman III. I bet you his office looks great. Anyway, he says that what the writer here means is success is the fruit of wisdom. Now, I'm going to quote. This one is technically anonymous. I'll tell you who I got it from. This was from my dad. Here's the way he used to say it to us. Work smarter, not harder. Now, he had to say that a lot to me and my brother. Because we weren't necessarily the sharpest knives in the drawer, if you know what I mean. Work smarter, not harder. The picture that he gives us here in verse 10 is a worker with an axe. Now, I've never lived in lumber company uh, country until now. And so I've always lived in places where we had to dream of what a tree looked like and that kind of thing. So this kind of of a proverb was a little distant for us. It's not that hard for you, probably. I spent, I told you last Saturday, I spent a little time working out in the backyard and I've got some tools that I'm using out there and I've discovered pretty early one of them's pretty dull and I just had to work harder to make it work. That's the picture that he's talking about here. Um, and so the idea, maybe y'all can tell me from a chainsaw or an axe or whatever it is, if you keep it sharp, it just works more efficiently. Is that true? All right. Now with that in mind, let's bring it home. How does that fit in our everyday life? Because most of us, I'm just guessing looking out here, I don't see anybody in, you know, plaid shirts and, you know, lumberjack clothes, so I'm guessing you don't cut trees for a living, most of you. How does this fit my everyday life? When I was in college, coming towards the end of my college days in in Plainview, Texas, up in the Panhandle, uh, we served First Baptist Church of Halfway. I was a music minister first and then music and youth minister And uh, one of the things that church did for us before we left the Plainview area when I graduated was to ordain me to the ministry. That's pretty typical. The first full-time church a preacher boy goes to, typically that church will ordain them if they 
passed the test. And so our church decided it was the thing to do for me to be there, and so we did that. And after all the questioning and all that, we came down, well, all of the preparations, we came down to the questioning day. Uh, and so pastors from all over the area were invited to come, including all my professors from school, which was a daunting thing. Uh, but the one that got me the most was the area missionary. That's the Baptist representative of the area. And he came to my ordination council, and I'd had some dealings with him, not a whole lot, but he was a seasoned pastor. You know, he would have been probably the equivalent of Parks Walker showing up at one of those things uh, and knowing just what to ask to nail you to the wall. And so that's what I was worried about. And we came through the whole ordination questioning thing, and when it was all over, as everybody was leaving, Dr. Bradley came up to me and he said, Mark, uh, I really think that... uh, you'd make a great pastor. And uh, I'd like to put your name in front of a couple of the churches here in the, in the Panhandle who are looking for pastors. Well, that presented a dilemma for me because I didn't really know what I needed to do. Should I go off to seminary? Uh, should I stay? Now, by that time, our son Brandon was about two and a half years old, if I remember right. Uh, Teresa was having to uh, make ends. You know, I was busy going to school and she was trying to make our life as normal as possible with that, and we were making almost no money, and just a number of things. I thought, man, I want to get in. I just want to get in there and work in the ministry. I think, and so it was a real appeal to me uh, to just stay and become a pastor, and let seminary go by the wayside. And uh, so it worked on me for a while, and finally, I decided to make an appointment with one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Fred Meeks, was our pastor when we moved to Plainview in the first place. He had been pastor of that church for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, I think. Uh, And he was a great pastor. And uh, for three months or so, we went to that church before we went to work out at First Baptist Halfway. uh, And he was our pastor. Well, somewhere in that time, immediately after that, the Wayland Baptist University hired him, and he became the head of the religion department. And so he was not my pastor anymore. He was now my professor. And I took numerous theology classes with him and doctrine and those kind of things. And he was an incredible scholar. So here was a man who represented both for me. Great scholarship and yet the ability to relate to people. A great pastor. And so he became quickly one of my favorite professors and still is. Uh, And so I made an appointment to go talk to him. And I said, okay, here's the deal. And I laid out what Dr. Bradley had said about staying in pastoring. I said, I kind of think maybe I ought to go to seminary. I just don't really know. Uh, Help me make a decision. And among other things, he said this. I had no clue that it was biblical. (laughs) Uh, I should have known with him. But here's what he said. Now, Mark, you know, if I wanted to go out in the back and um, cut up a tree... He said, I could take an axe, and he said, it didn't matter where you get it. He said, I could take an axe, and I could cut it up. And he said, if it's, if it's dull, I'll just work a little bit harder at it. Take me a little bit longer. I'll, I'll, I'll mangle some of the wood, but, you know, he said, I, I, could, I could pull it off that way. But he said, if I really wanted to do it well, do it right and do it efficiently, I'd go get that axe sharpened before I went. And I replied, Yeah, 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 but I want to know about this school thing. (laughs) And it dawned on me that he was talking about the school thing. And so when he let it sink in for me and it, you know, apparently registered on my face, he said this, Mark, I have no doubt that you could go out and you could pastor church today. 
I know you as a student. I know your work out there. He said, I believe you can do that. He said, if you'll go to seminary, God will prepare you for bigger things. And he'll sharpen you for what he really has planned for you. You can settle for it now or you can go finish the preparation to be what God wants you to be. Be sharp. Now, that's work smarter, not harder. But because, well, a number of things. I've tried to say it a different way with my kids growing up. I've used the work smarter, not harder, but uh, I've tried to say it this way to my kids. Use your head. And I know that that, I'm sure that there have been times, Lauren can tell you, that there probably have been times that when I said use your head, uh, it was not a nice inflection to it. It's like, come on, use your head. Parents, don't say that to your kids like that, all right? But I've tried to teach them, engage, plug in, think about life as you make decisions. Use your head. Now, I have two sons and a daughter. Now, my second, many of you have met our oldest son, Brandon, and his wife, Crystal. They're the ones who uh, gave us a granddaughter. Um, Our other son, most of you have not met. Only the people who were on the search committee met him. Uh, You'll have a chance to meet him next week. His name is Colin. He married Selena back in November. uh, And he's coming this week to do Disciple Now for our kids here. Uh, that was not my doing, just for the record, but uh, I think it's a good choice, but it wasn't, I didn't pull strings or anything. Colin's going to come, and then he's going to preach in this service next week, and you'll see that you called the wrong road travel, is what you'll find out. But uh, Colin, all through his life, has been a natural athlete. Now, that ate his brother's lunch from time to time, but uh, Colin has been a natural athlete all of his life, no matter what he did. Uh, when it came to athletics, he was just naturally good at it. He could be good without even trying. And so then when he began to apply himself, he was really better than good in several different sports. Um, and so uh, it set up this for me with him, this idea of use your head. Uh, you see, the part of the problem for some of us is we reach a level that we're just kind of naturally gifted at some things. Or talented, maybe is a better way to say that. And so we can skate through life and kind of do a decent job at stuff. And then we kind of settle into that and we think we don't have to use our head. We don't have to work smarter, not harder. And then it blindsides us and we find ourselves in trouble. And that happened with Colin when he was playing soccer. Now, he played on a traveling team. Um, and several of his teams, as he was getting older, were really good state playoff kind of teams and that kind of deal. And uh, what happened, he rose to a level where all of a sudden everybody was a good athlete. And you can't just skate when everybody's a good athlete. And so he started getting his lunch eaten on the soccer field on a regular basis. And so I adopted this with him because um, I was allowed to coach, to to be like an assistant coach for that particular team. Uh, And so I was on the sideline, and so I would often yell at, excuse me, I would uh, encourage him from the sidelines. Um, And... (laughs) He didn't always look at me when I was doing that because I was saying things like, come on, use your head. 
And so when I figured out that wasn't motivating him very well, if I could get his attention, I would just do this. And he got it. I mean, I immediately I could see a change in the way he handled himself in that game. That's a good point of reference for us. Be sharp. What the preacher is telling us here, back in verse 10, is you can slug your way through life, inefficiently spending all kinds of energy, money, Another thing my dad used to say, you'll learn something if your money holds out. That's wisdom. I hated that, but it's wisdom. And so as we come to apply this into our lives, it's one thing to see it stated as a Proverbs in Scripture. It's another thing when we pull it out and get it through our head down into our heart that ultimately trickles into our feet. And it begins to be the way we walk with our lives. Be sharp. But how do we translate that now into real life? To me, it's one thing for us to just say, be sharp, and I'll give you a couple examples and then we move on. But because we really preach here not just for information, but for life change, it's important, I think, that we say, okay, so, so how do we do that? So I want to look at a couple of things about what sharpens us. And we're going to be in the book of Proverbs now, so just kind of hold what you remember from... Ecclesiastes 10, and we're going to go to Proverbs, particularly Proverbs 1. Four, very quickly, the way I count it, I've got about six minutes and I've got a half a page of notes. So let's see if we, we can do to get through some of these at least. Here's the first one. What sharpens your, wi- your life? Oh, wow. I'm going to pass this off and let somebody else talk about what sharpens your wife, but uh, I'll do the life part. First of all, it's experience. Just going through it can sharpen you. In other words, if you handle your life well, you should learn from your experience. Sometimes the best way for us to learn is just to go through it. This could be a very uncomfortable six minutes for me or for you, depending on how we take this. Parents, you got to stop babying your babies. One of the best ways to learn that life is hard is to let life be hard. But for parents, it's hard to do that because we love our children and we've bought into, hear me very carefully now, we've bought into a lie of the devil that says, if I can just insulate my kids from the pain of life, they'll have it better than I did. That's a lie from the mouth of hell because they need to learn and they're not going to just get it because you told them that. So the experience part of it is one of the ways that you get wisdom in life. Here's Here's a warning for you. Oh my goodness, this is a painful process. If you want to gain wisdom and be sharpened by experience, you just need to buckle up and hang on because this is going to be a rough ride. And it's incredibly repetitive. You know, let me, the best example I can give you for this about how experience teaches us is 
Angry Birds. Don't you just hate that game? I love to hate that game. That's the best way to say it. Because see, here's the deal. If you don't know Angry, Ger- Angry Birds, uh, join us in the 21st century. Come on, it's not bad here, all right? Um, actually, Angry Birds is one of these phone or iPad or, you know, I don't know if they have it on a computer or not, but everywhere else I've seen it is on these mobile devices. And uh, it's great when you're, uh, well, never mind. Um, three levels, they give you a star. The idea is you take a bird, and you slingshot it across the screen and you knock down stuff. Okay? Simple concept. Very simple. Uh, it ought to tell you something that there's three levels. Three stars means you're incredibly awesome. You're good at this game. Okay? That's the only acceptable level for me. I'm not OCD. I'm not competitive. Right. Okay? But you can get one star. Just, if, you, if you just like completing stuff, then you can get the one star and be satisfied with being, you know, well, I got finished. Go for the three, all right? But here's the problem. You'll find yourself on one little level for days trying to blow these things up, knock them down, whatever. And so the way that works is you shoot a bird across and you don't get them all. And so the next time around you go, well, I'm going to try something different. And this, you shoot it across, and it, right? That's the chase. That's what we've been preaching about now for a couple of months. It is, I'm going to keep doing this and I'm going to find a way to get it done. And if the preacher says in verse 10, be sharp. And experience sharpens you. If it works in a game like that, you've got to know it works in life. Well, you can make the decision. How much do you want to pay on the current level? But there's always another level out there. Frustrating. Painful. You know one of the hardest things for me as a pastor? Is to watch God's people go for experience and never learn. To just keep beating their heads against a figurative wall when God says, I have a better plan for you. Second one is people. Oh, yeah, you can learn from people, all right. (laughs) Uh, Another thing my dad used to say, not in a complimentary kind of way, you wake up in a new world every day, don't you? (laughs) You know what that means? It means you're dull, okay? It means you didn't learn from yesterday. It's the old 51st Dates movie, if you saw that, okay? Where you wake up in the morning and it's all, everything's brand new and I get to learn. Oh, I have never met you before, that kind of thing. Um, Wouldn't it be awful if we didn't learn from people around us? One of God's greatest gifts to you is putting people in your circle that you can vicariously learn how not to live. But that won't happen if you're not engaged, if you're not plugging in using your head. I got a lot more to say about that. That's Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19. Let me just read a couple of those verses for you real quick. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Sounds a little bit like Boston, doesn't it? 
Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us and we will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. And I could continue reading. Let me just say it this way. For many years in my life, that passage I just read, this idea about being sharpened by other people, especially your parents, I totally ignored I didn't want to hear what my parents had to say. When they said it, I rejected it. And so experience took over. And I had to learn some things the hard way. And then I decided at the bottom of that barrel, I decided maybe I should listen to them. And all of a sudden I began to see that some of the stuff they'd been telling me makes life better. They weren't quite as dumb as I thought they were. And then God changed my perspective again when I had a son. And all of a sudden now, I was the one who was doing the teaching. So parents, what are you doing to sharpen your children? What are you teaching them? I know great examples in this church. I'm not going to tell you to protect their privacy, but great examples of I've seen parents in this church who systematically prepare their children to leave home. If your kids are four and five years old and you're not already planning for the day they leave home, you're behind. What are you teaching them? People sharpen us. Thirdly, this, by the way, would normally be at the top of the list. God's word sharpens us. Proverbs verses 1 through 7. I'll just read the first three verses in the Proverbs of of Solomon, the son of uh, David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. And I could continue on, but the whole point of the book of Proverbs is to give us instruction. How do you live? One of the first prayers that I prayed when God called me to be a minister, and it's been my continuing prayer since, was God, give me wisdom. I know you call your people sheep, and that's not an accident. I need wisdom. By the way, so do you. If you're, my dad told me right after I became a minister, First piece of advice he gave me, you better make friends with God's word. Still good counsel. You know, the reality is we got a lot of people who have an acquaintance with God's word, but they're not friends. Thirdly, fourth, excuse me, fourthly, no, I'm not, I'm not going to give you fourthly yet. I'm going to give you one more. One of the things that I've seen through the years, I was a youth minister for a long time. Um, I've seen teenage girls who believe that they can save their less than ideal boyfriends. Um, what? Yeah, right. 1 Corinthians 15.33 is Teresa's favorite verse to use with our children. Bad company corrupts good morals. I'll tell you, that's a sharpening verse. But we decide that our wisdom is better. We have a better way. 
And so we follow suit with that. By the way, that's not limited to teenage girls. That's all of us. We decide how it's going to be. And so we surround ourselves with people that help us get where we want to go. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now the fourth one, the fourth instructor for us is life. (laughs) If you live it, I don't have time to go to uh, Proverbs 8, verses 1 through 3, but there you'll find the metaphor of wisdom as a lady who stands in the street and she calls out to people as life goes on, hey, come over here and learn from me, draw from me. There you go. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud. In other words, it's there for you. So now I'm back to what I said to Colin. Use your head. Open your eyes. Look around. Seize the moment to be sharpened. Last question for you. How sharp are you? Let's pray. Lord, these are tough messages for us. We desperately need help. It's very easy for us to buy into that lie that says we're pretty sharp. We got this. We live by our wits. And yet all of us know that if we were to be really honest, we need help. So we pray that you would take this message and this one simple truth in an obscure verse and drill it home for us. Give us the grace we need to ask for sharpening. Give us perception on the world around us that we would be able to see those things as we were reminded in that drama earlier. To see the things in life and see how you are involved in them to make us more what you want us to be. Perspective to walk when we want to lay down. Sharpen us is our prayer in Jesus' name.